Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Hello and welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast. We're so excited to be with you today to talk about Christmas and the idea of the incarnation. So we believe in the fact that God came to earth as a human being, the incarnation or becoming flesh of our one true God. And so we're going to discuss today here on the Educational Renaissance Podcast what implications that truth has for the work of teaching, for education. Is there a connection in some way between the incarnation and our work of teaching and educating the young? Here with me today are Dr. Patrick Egan and Colby Atchison to talk about this exciting and interesting topic for you this Advent season. And we think it's really important to uh, dig in here to some theology and see how theology is going to impact our educational philosophy. Why don't you get us started by framing the, uh, the question here for us, Dr. Egan? So we often, at this time of year, do a lot of decorating and we we change over some of the routines that we have we decorate christmas trees maybe we cut out snowflakes in the classroom and we listen to christmas music maybe put on some tchaikovsky nutcracker and there's this vibrancy the, the christmas lights we see popping up on houses and I think there's a lot of people who have a deep concern about the commercialization of Christmas and how early do we see advertising for Christmas and all of that. And so to counter that, we often hear this phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season. As we think about that idea, that impulse to excavate, well, what is it we are celebrating? What is it we are doing when we have this big moment in the year that the entire culture celebrates, we are really talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his bodily incarnation, the Godhead dwelling with us, the second person of the Trinity, the invisible God taking on human flesh and dwelling among us, living among us, walking among us. And there's a theological paradigm here that I think goes all the way back to creation. When God created, he did so by speaking words. And there's a communicative act that I think reveals something about God, and it reveals something about us as well. If God is a communicating God, what he has done is he's made us as human beings to be receptive to the communications he provides. And we can think about this in terms of God revealing words to us in Scripture, in his written revelation. We can think about the ways in which we are highly responsive to his creation. It, it excites wonder and awe when we look at mountain landscapes, when we look at the stars and we see the majesty that is part of our created world that stems back to his verbal creation of all things. 
And then his ultimate communication to us came in what John calls the word, the logos, that became incarnate. So when we think about God as a communicating God, I, I have this idea that he is an educating God and that we as human beings are learners. We have this mental, imaginative setup that, that we can learn the divine knowledge that he reveals to us. Now, obviously, there are aspects of what God knows that it would be impossible for us to know, but he's given us enough that we can understand our human condition, that we are fallen, and we understand enough that we can receive his salvation to be made pure and holy through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when we extend that to the classroom, we in the classroom really are imitating that divine impulse, that divine character. And so in our classrooms, we as teachers really are imitating something divine, that if God is a communicating God and we are communicating to other learners, there's something really special, something that is incarnational in that classroom. We are handling things that are true, good, and beautiful, that when we trace those true, good, and beautiful things back, we see that they go all the way back to God's creative impulse. So this is the material we're handling on a daily basis in the classroom. And we understand that these children, these students that we are working with, because they are made in the image of God, he has made them specially to be receptive to the things that God is teaching. This is it's a massive theological series of ideas that I think we should dive into, but I think they are really caught up in what we're thinking about in this Christmas season, the incarnation of the sun. This is why we have the lights and the trees and the cutout snowflakes and all of that, because there's something magnificent about the incarnation of Jesus Christ that we want to celebrate, ought to celebrate, and I think it relates to something special happening in our classrooms. Wow, Patrick, that just blew my mind. I feel like you had 20 different major theological ideas and movements there that you all connected to the incarnation and education. Let's maybe like untangle a couple of those and look further at them and how they relate to one another. So you talked about this kind of educational movement of God as God as an educator and his revealing work. I want to invite Colby to jump in here too in a moment, but one of my thoughts uh, developing from that is how you were talking about God revealing things in the beginning. And, and I'm thinking of the, the opening chapters of Genesis, for instance, and Adam and Eve and and what he's doing in, with with them at the very beginning and how there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think that's something that we maybe overlook sometimes. We just think about good and evil, but not that it's the knowledge of good and evil and how God has a, a purpose that he has for humanity. Of course, one part of that is actually that there will be a learning of how to do good for those who ultimately trust in him. But there's this negative dip, obviously, with the fall and the choice there. I wanted to maybe kind of unpack that. Do, do you think that there's a educational aspect to even that early creation story uh, with, with the image of God first being placed in the garden? 
when you have eyes to see it, it becomes abundantly clear. This whole tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually informs us of our educational task, right? It is not, when we are educating, when we're creating a learning environment, it is not about the dissemination of information, it is about formation. And God planted right in the garden this whole formational impulse, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are moral creatures, but that morality, that ethic needs to be trained. And so that training into the virtuous living that would ultimately make us happiest and ultimately have that right relationship with God is essential to the way God created us. The other idea is you get all of these domains of science and knowledge in the garden. How does one build a family? And you have Adam and Eve there, and you have the naming of the animals. That's such a scientific classification impulse. So all of these ways in which we interact with our world are in the garden in an unfallen way that I think are, you know, you can see ways in which that garden experience was very much like what we would say we would want our classrooms to be like. God walked with Adam. You know, how much do we want to be walking with our students in, in a physical sense? Yes, but also we're walking with them through attacks. We're walking with them through life's experiences. When I think the movement that we can see there too, and I want to give some credit to the Omnibus Four series uh, put out by Veritas Press. The Omnibus Four has a this kind of movement where it goes and looks at the the Book of Proverbs, and I forget who's the editor of that, but I recently taught it, and it talks about how there, you actually see that the worship comes before wisdom. And, and kind of leads to it. And that's maybe one way of taking what's going on with uh, the prohibition not to take the knowledge of the of good and evil, because Adam and Eve must learn to worship first in relationship with God. And there's that incarnational aspect, like you said, of the walking with him. But the, the root is like the destination is wisdom. And you see a similar movement with Israel as a whole, God's people, they're they're given the law, and then there's the movement to wisdom uh, in the time of Solomon and the book of Proverbs that kind of is flowing there so that you have the, the incarnation of God's presence with them through the tabernacle and the laws, and then that movement up, and you see that as well in the book of Proverbs specifically, where you have mention of a tree of life, again, and of knowledge uh, and discernment between good and evil being the ultimate path that God has for his people as they submit to parental instruction and learn from God's revelation. All these things that you're seeing there, I think, uh, point to this kind of educator God that we have. And now for a message from our sponsor. Rethink your why. As educators interested in renewing education for a new generation, Jason Barney's new book, Rethinking the Purpose of Education, helps you rethink learning objectives around moral, spiritual, and intellectual virtues. Get your copy of Rethinking the Purpose of Education by Jason Barney, available now through our website or at Amazon.com. 
This is a fascinating discussion. My mind is going a million different places at once. Uh, so, Patrick, thanks for for uh, just prompting these these ideas here um, to to stay in the garden for another minute or so. When I think about this idea of the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil planted in the garden, it makes me think actually of one of Charlotte Mason's twenty principles, which is that children are born neither good nor evil. And whenever I teach this to people who are new to Charlotte Mason, I've learned to kind of begin with the caveat, look, Charlotte Mason's not making a a theological claim here. And so let's actually assume that she affirms a a general version of, um, of total depravity or the fallenness of man. So given the fallenness of man, what might Charlotte Mason mean by the idea that children are born neither good nor evil? And I've found that to be a helpful way of getting to that that topic that she has in mind, which is what you guys are talking about here, which is that there is um, there's moral work to be done in the garden for Adam and Eve. It is a training ground. It is a, a classroom. And human beings have that real choice to do good or to do evil. And of course, I personally come from a reformed background, so I could reflect more theologically on the sovereignty of God and so forth. But truly, the Bible puts forward a portrait uh, where God's uh, sovereignty is affirmed and human responsibility is affirmed. And so as teachers, it really is important for us to help our students develop that moral strength to choose the good each day. I think there's an incredible passage that illustrates this really well from the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians, because he elaborates on the connection between parenting, and we might say educating as well, and what he was doing in gospel ministry. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, he starts saying, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And then later on, he goes to say that he was like a father with his children, exhorting each one of them and encouraging them and charging them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so I'm just struck by this statement that they were ready to share not only the gospel of God, but their own selves, their own lives with them. And this incarnational, I'm here with you in the flesh. I love you. We are here together as a sort of family, as being so important uh, to have as a mindset, as a teacher or an educator. You are doing that same sort of ministry of a different kind than the Apostle Paul, obviously, but that you you are there, you're sharing with them. You have this, this fellowship, this participation together in the work of day to day. Like you were saying, Colby, the, the fact of these teachers giving of themselves to this sort of particular profession where they are with the children each day, hoping to guide them to Christ most of all, but then into all truth or all knowledge and whatever skill and excellence that they can develop and is in the curriculum. I think we would all say as, you know, leaders of the schools, 
but but even things that aren't in the curriculum right like we're gonna help them make sure they've got these different skills and and they're going to interact and there's so much that's going to go on i think that is analogous to what Jesus himself did in the incarnation, right? Paul's ministry and how that worked itself out amongst the early church was an embodied ministry. It wasn't just a transactional, here's the truths, take notes, and then we're we're good. You know, then you guys can move on and I'm going somewhere else. It was very much a relational, and I think that's part of what we get at with the incarnation. It was a relational, embodied ministry, and the same is true, right? Is is imaged in the image of the invisible God becoming human and dwelling among us, and being a rabbi, being a teacher among his people, and making disciples who would then go out and be teachers, who would then go out and teach all of the nations what he commanded them. I think that that connection is legitimate. And I think it's really important and inspiring to us, hopefully, as, as a teacher and during Advent season to reflect on the fact that, in a way, the mission that God the Father sent the Son on is something that you get to participate in as you spend your time and and are with present physically and emotionally spiritually with instruction to support the children that you are with day in and day out one of the ideas that you're really working with there is the way in which when god uh, releases the holy spirit to indwell when jesus goes and ascends you have these statements of the body so the church is the body where the hands and feet the the way in which jesus touches and walks with and communes with people today is actually through that collection of his people together so you have these statements when you know two or more are dwelling together in my name i am there in their midst there's some kind of spiritual presence that is there and i think that indicates to us that one of our tasks as teachers is to invite the presence of the living god into those spaces so as colby was mentioning when you've got even just two people in that classroom there is some kind of thing going on there we are physically present but we are also spiritually present in that space and so some of what is incarnational is just that zing that electricity of connection that is spiritual in nature when we are having that intentional connection with god through christ and then i also think about the ways in which john in his first letter says he reflects on the fact that he himself was able to physically touch and see jesus christ but he writes to people who did not have that advantage. And what he compels them to consider is your love of the brotherhood is now the equivalent of that. So how are we in our classrooms doing something that is likewise? We are helping young people who can neither see nor hear because God is invisible and he speaks with that still small voice to have a relationship with God. And so really what 
what we need to be doing is cultivating their imagination, their creativity, their awareness of their spiritual nature to commune with that invisible, silent God, because he is really there and he's really communicating. But there's something different than just our eyes and ears that we're utilizing to hear and see. So that incarnation comes through us in some ways taking on the burden of responsibility to cultivate that sensitivity to him. So it's not about us, it's about him. That mentality needs to be there. And then to have intentional moments where we say he is present, or we need to spend some moments in silence here to listen carefully to what he's saying. I'll tell you what, I'm never going to walk into our school the same way again, because I feel like each time I open the door and, and walk in, I'm I'm entering the the world again as an incarnation, you know. And now for a message from our sponsor. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. You know, this topic also makes me think of the importance in secondary school of the opportunity to retreat and go on overnight trips. Back in the day, Jason and I would go on overnight trips to a family's house with uh, lots of students and we'd fill up the house. And in more recent years, Patrick and I have been able to do the same in, in a retreat center with students. And what always strikes me about it is how when you change out of the school uniform and out of the professional work attire and you dress like you would in a normal day, you you learn things about people that you didn't know. Um, not only in terms of how they dress, but how they behave in informal informal settings. The games that you play together on these retreats, staying up a little bit later, having good laughs. It's just another form of powerful incarnation where we are literally as teachers sharing ourselves with our students and they're gaining access to us in a unique way that is forming them and Lord willing, forming them in a positive way as we are seeking to follow Christ. As we follow Christ, our students follow us all the more important for us to have and cultivate that walk with Christ ourselves, knowing that as we imitate him, we are being imitated. And whether we're imitating him or not, we are being imitated. Students are watching. Another uh, funny reflection about 
teaching is that students very quickly, a few weeks in to the school year, a few months in, they already kind of know how teachers act. They know the kind of, you know, their repeat statements they make or their funny little ticks, where they walk in the classroom, things they do. And, and they can make jokes about that. Like, oh yeah, you always do that. Or yeah, you probably didn't realize it, but you always say this, you know, it's like, in other words, they're watching. They truly are experiencing this idea of incarnation. And so all the more reason to to just take that seriously as teachers and to to be good examples for our students, to love them well, to share ourselves with them in an appropriate manner. It always takes wisdom as a teacher to know how much personal information to share and and what not to share and how to maintain that proper uh, relationship of, of someone in authority, right? We're teachers, not camp counselors, right? What does that mean? You know, this also makes me think about uh, different ways of interpreting Charlotte Mason's idea of masterly inactivity and even her warning against teachers attempting to be the showmen of the universe. You know, there are some streams of Charlotte Mason that that encourage the teacher really kind of fading into the background throughout the learning process and really letting knowledge be the exclusive uh, focus and, and foreground of the learning. And the teacher's job is to really fade into the distance in a discussion, say, and not reveal much of their personality. And so I'm curious what you guys think about that. I think the question would be something like, what are the practical implications for the teacher's participation and personality in the learning process in light of the idea of incarnation. And now for a message from our sponsor. Sign up for the Educational Renaissance newsletter. Stay connected to the EdRen community to deepen your understanding of education and hone your craft as a teacher. The Educational Renaissance newsletter comes out every Saturday morning sharing each new blog post. Subscribers also get advance notice on special offers. We promise not to fill up your email with endless advertisements. Become part of the Educational Renaissance community. Subscribe today at educationalrenaissance.com. I think that there is a important point you're making, Colby, with that, that at least puts up guardrails to the kind of overly, uh, some sort of overly mechanistic view of the teacher as only ever facilitating, you know, an interaction between the minds of the students and the minds of the authors of the texts or the great painters or whatever it might be that you're studying. I think there is a sense in which a discipleship, an incarnational view of education would encourage more of that sharing of life and personality. Now, that doesn't mean that the teacher should dominate or manipulate, but I think both those terms are culturally embedded. What 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 does it look like to dominate or to manipulate? Uh, well, it's not one particular act. It's a way of being in a context. And I do think that to develop from this series of thoughts that we've had that viewing uh, education incarnationally is actually to raise a very 
high bar. I think it's an inspiring bar, but it is a high bar to go on further from where I quoted from First uh, Thessalonians before. Paul is able to say that, you know, to his, the people that he was visiting in Thessalonica, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So there's this laboring and caring and hard work that he is modeling. So the importance of modeling there. Um, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses, he goes on to say, and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. And then that's where he goes on to say for, that I was like a father with his children right there, exhorting you all. And so I do think that that idea of... Um, if our task is actually in some way to be a vessel of God's educational work, that actually calls out from us uh, such high conduct, such a high standard that we would live lives before them because they can see it all. It's, again, not just a transactional thing where I just read the script from the curriculum in front of them and, you know, put the buzzer and do all that. It's actually my whole life is modeling something before them. That is an incredibly high standard that that should should lead to us, you know, doing our work as teachers with a type of blamelessness by the power of the Holy Spirit that I think Paul is talking about there. And I think that will in and of itself prevent us from a prideful domination or a manipulative behaviorism that's going to make us the center of the teaching work. And, and I think instead it's going to have this in, incarnational point where the, where the goal of the teaching is your growth, you students, uh, how you are being transformed, how you are uh, developing in your creativity and skills, how you are in becoming more and more all that God wants you to be. As you've brought up Charlotte Mason, she she does pose the question in her second volume, Parents and Children, and I think this is explored in, in her other volumes as well. She asks the question, can spirit act upon matter? And this gets at that mind-brain duality, right, or or problem, where we often think, well, the mind is an extension of the physical matter of our brain. And so when we are changing our neurons, our synapses and all of that, that impacts the brain. But so much recent research, and this is actually what Charlotte Mason said 100 years ago, is that actually spiritual stuff impacts matter. So that at just a kind of a secular thought level, we could say through reflection, you could change the literal physical matter of your brain through the way you think, the way you feel and all of that. And I think drawing upon what Jason is just saying, when we invite the Holy Spirit in and we recognize that we are spiritual creatures that can actually have an impact on us physically. And what Charlotte Mason goes on to say is we actually recognize in one another's countenances somebody who is morally upright, or we see somebody who has developed in themselves something like discipline when they have good posture. So there are spiritual things, moral things that impact us physically, 
and not the opposite. It's not as though you can find some mechanism or lever to make somebody spiritual. So it really gives us a question of, well, what do we prioritize in our classrooms? Is that spiritual realm like a nice thing to include if we've got time, or is it the essential core, the thing we are desperately praying for that's got to be in place. It has to happen. And then, you know, getting through all of our curriculum is a nice to have in addition to that. Now, obviously I'm problematizing that a little bit. Of course, we want to be getting through our curriculum. We want to be having these moments where we learn richly and deeply and, and all of that. But I think we can sometimes be tempted to think, well, the spiritual stuff I'll get to that when I get to that. We'll do a short prayer at the beginning of the class and then get on with what we're supposed to be doing. And I think if we have an idea that the whole thing ought to be infused with the spirit, it's such an important principle. Absolutely. And this is one of the biggest draws, I think, to a classical approach to learning and a Charlotte Mason approach to learning is that there, there really ought be no divide between the sacred and the secular uh, between the this worldly and the heavenly. Charlotte Mason talks about this, as you mentioned, Patrick, and we also have this idea in the classical tradition that there's no truth that is not God's truth, and that all learning ultimately comes from the Lord, that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And so in the the broader history of the Christian schooling movement, the critique of a modern Christian school is that they're following the framework of modern education and then adding chapel to it, Bible classes and Christian teachers. And I think we're like, well, that's a good start, but we could, we could go further. There's so much more we could, could do. We can integrate the faith so much more naturally through the learning process and, and spiritually as well. There's, there's so much formation to happen in the classroom. What a, what a great way to think about this today through the lens of the incarnation. Well, thank you for joining us today on Educational Renaissance Podcast. In today's episode, we talked about a host of things related to the Christmas idea of the incarnation and how our great God is an educator and he has given us his son, who became incarnate. And because of that, there are so many implications for how we would go about the incarnational ministry of education in our schools today. Be sure to subscribe to catch all of our new episodes. And why don't you go ahead and leave a comment? Give us a five-star rating to help us reach as many people in our movement as possible. We have some great resources for you. If you haven't been to our website recently, go ahead and check out some books, webinars, subscribe to our newsletter. And we're so grateful to be supporting you all in your work as we together seek to create this renaissance. We, we want a rebirth of this ancient wisdom for education in the modern era today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time.